sure that cannon will be used against you in a court of law. And uh, <laughs> so we do, do want to make sure that there's men only uh, in the house. Uh, that, that form there is called Reasons to Maintain Moral Purity. And I'm not going to really read through it. I just want you to take it home with you. Uh, take, take a couple things. It's a, a gentleman uh, basically wrote these things down whenever he felt vulnerable to sexual temptation. And he cited the following reminders of the negative consequences a wrong moral choice could produce, such as grieving the Lord who redeemed me, dragging his sacred name into the mud. One day I'll have to look Jesus, my righteous judge, in the face and give an account for my actions. I could follow in the footsteps of those whose immorality forfeited or in some cases even crippled their lives. I could inflict untold hurt on my best friend. Maybe we will read through this. Is that all right, gentlemen? <laughs> I could inflict untold hurt on my best friend, my wife. I could lose my best friend or my wife's respect and her trust. I could hurt my beloved children. I could destroy my example and credibility with my children. I could nullify both present and future efforts to teach them to obey God. Why should I listen to a man who betrayed mommy and us? If my blindness should continue <clears throat> or my wife be unable to forgive, I may lose my wife and my children forever. Why should I maintain purity in a moral sense as a man? I mean, look at the culture around you. Look at the things going on in society. Why should I maintain moral purity? See, sometimes it helps to think these things through. Are you listening to me here today? I could cause shame to my whole family. I could lose my self-respect. I could create a form of guilt awfully hard to shake. Even though God would forgive me, would I forgive myself? I could form memories and flashbacks that could plague future intimacy with my wife. I could forfeit the effect of years of witnessing to other family members. I could reinforce their distrust for Christians. Listen, I, I'm in my 22nd year of ministry. I know I'm 46 years of age. I know I look older than that. <laughs> but you know, in 46 years of life and 22 years of ministry, you'd be surprised how many people I have met and know personally who right now have a distrust for Christians because of these very things. And probably every one of you in this room could name someone you know, and perhaps, you know, several that you know. Perhaps I could contribute to the hardening of their hearts. I could undermine, literally, the faithful example and hard work of other Christians in my community. I could bring great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God, and all that is good. Why should I? Remember the old song, It's Me, It's Me, O Lord? Standing in the need of prayer. And I'm a brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord. Why should I maintain moral purity? I could heap judgment and, and endless difficulty on a person with whom, in this case, I may have committed adultery. I could possibly bear the physical consequences of such diseases as gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, herpes, and AIDS, perhaps infecting my wife and, in the case of AIDS, even causing her death. I could possibly cause pregnancy, which would produce personal and financial implications, including a lifelong reminder of my sin. I could bring hurt to my friends, especially those that I have led to Christ and disciple. I could invoke shame and lifelong embarrassment upon myself. Why should I maintain moral purity? You may have some more things. I would encourage you, write them down. Post it, not on the refrigerator, though. Okay, guys? <laughs> In 1995, my wife and my two older children, we moved to the nation of Sweden to direct a Bible school over there. And I, I kind of had the mindset when we moved over there that, uh, and we had made you know, several missions trips prior to that time, but I kind of thought, and maybe as an American, it's normal for us to think this way that everybody else in the world thinks just like we do, they just speak a different language. And that's how I thought. It was an erroneous mindset, but I thought that way. And having lived there, you know, the first few months, I, you know, it kind of, you know, supported my theory. But after about six months, something began to happen. 
I began to see the culture that was there, over a thousand-year-old culture. And when you begin to see a culture, then you begin to see the influence of that culture on the people that live there. And it's that culture that determines the way they think, the way they respond to you know, issues, the way they deal with situations in life. The culture creates a mindset in its people. Well, then when we moved back to the United States, you know, I, it was just a simple transition back. I mean, I grew up here, you know, and uh, I wasn't prepared for what happened after about six months moving back to this country. All of a sudden, the culture that existed here became very apparent to us. And particularly, some things that stuck out to me was the manner in which the culture was extremely negative towards and exploited the weaknesses of men. Much of the advertising deals with the sexual weakness in men. You know, and it's not that God designed, you know, had a goofy idea when he created a man that way. How many of you want to know how to meet the needs of your wife? Anybody here want to know how to meet the needs of your wife? Now listen to me, guys. Write these down. Take them home with you. She'll love you forever. <laughs> <laughs> This is, how, this is how you meet the needs of your wife. Admire her, caress her, take care of her, console her, show mercy on her, forgive her, show compassion on her, talk to her, be with her, love her, be tender with her, appreciate her, support her, approve of her, compliment her, give her security, be her best friend, and then do it again. Now, this is how the wife meets the needs of a man. Show up naked and bring food. <laughs> this is not complicated. <laughs> and you were created that way, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we live in a society now that has exploited those things. And what really became interesting to me is, you know, in, over the years, there's been a change in the media you know, perception of man and the way it, you know, uh, shall I say, portrays a man. Much of the cartoons, if you go to typically almost every cartoon that is geared to your kids and much of the children and young persons programming, if you look at the main male role model in that, you know, portrayal, he's portrayed as an idiot, as a buffoon, and completely out of touch with his family. The man is portrayed as the one who has no idea what's going on in the home. Mom does everything. She's got the level head. She's perceived as the leader in the house. In almost a cross. Now, you go back 40 years ago, and you look at you know, the portrayal of man in terms of the media culture. Man was portrayed as a, you know, as a gentle leader, the person who you know, had, a, had a governing hand in the house in a kind way. But typically, in our, it was amazing to us when we moved back to the United States to see that. Well, then we had the privilege. The Lord allowed us to pastor for eight and a half years. Now, during that process, you know, I you know, talked with a lot of men. And I remember one gentleman, you know, he had an issue with the courts. You say, did he make a mistake? Yeah, he did. Uh, did he acknowledge his mistake? Yeah, he did. Did he want to change because of his mistakes? Yeah, he did. And so he was dealing with a situation with his ex-wife in a court of law. Now, what he was doing was he was obtained because there was false accusations being made against him. And so, you know, he was asking for character witnesses. And so he was going because we all knew him. We'd seen him get saved. We'd seen the transition take place in his life. We'd seen a complete turnaround in this man's life. So he's getting character witnesses and brought him to his lawyer. Listen to what his lawyer said. There's nothing we can do. The entire court system is stacked against you. That's the culture, that's the ideology that has been embraced by this culture. And see, we didn't even see it. See, it's kind of like, you ever heard the expression, you couldn't see the forest because of the trees? But you get outside of the forest and you look back at it and you go, yeah, there's a forest over there. There's a tree line. But you get out in the middle of it, you don't see it. And so here we were. We had come outside of the culture and then came back and went, well, looky here. I never saw this before. 
Come with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. I don't know about you, but I want to be, you know, not just transformed, but radically transformed. I know what this culture represents. I like to say it this way. Somewhere there has to be a catalyst of change. I mean, you can look at everybody else and say, well, let them do it, Lord. It has to, you know, the buck has to stop somewhere. See, my father was a very negative leader. He came out of World War II. He was a veteran, you know, a decorated veteran. You know, he had all this, you know, stuff that he had accomplished in his military service. But he came out of the war, World War II and the Korean War, an absolute mess. And so, you know, it brought upon him, you know, he had a problem with alcohol and a lot of other things. He had a very violent temper. And, uh, and I remember as a young man saying, I'll never do that when I get big. How many of you ever been there? I'll never do that when I get big. I'll never do that when I get big. Guess what I did when I got big? Everything I said I'd never do. Do you know why? Because I didn't know how to fix it. I used to tell people this. You want to be really frustrated? Try and fix yourself. <laughs> oh, man, you want to get discouraged? Just go and try and fix yourself. You see, there's a process in which change occurs. It's laid out in the Word of God. See, you learn to follow the leadership of the Holy Ghost. And He'll lead you a certain way. But see, I didn't know the principle was in the Word. I learned to follow the leadership of the Holy Ghost. And then one day He turned around. It's like He turned me around and brought me back to the Word and showed me what He'd walked me through. And I went, looky there, it's right there. But see, I didn't know that before. There's a process by which these things occur. Did you find 1 Peter chapter 5? Notice here in the first verse, Peter's writing. He said, the elders which are among you, he said, I exhort. He said, I am also an elder. And then he said this, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He said, I was there. I saw it. I saw what he went through. I saw what he experienced. I saw what he did. Then he goes on to say, I'm also a partaker of something. The glory that shall be revealed. You could almost say it this way. What I am about to say to you is based upon what I saw and it also has everything to do with what you will see. He said, he gives some instructions here and know about feeding the flock. But then he comes down to the third verse and I want you to notice something with me. He said, don't be lords over God's heritage. I'll say it this way. Make sure you never become a dictator. Boy, as a man, we can do that in a heartbeat, can't we? I'm the man in the house. (laughs) You don't know who you're talking to. Do you know who I am? (laughs) Sure. He said, don't be a dictator. He said, what? Be an example. You see, there's a principle in life that those who have experience in an area should become examples to those who do not. I mean, let's just, let's just make it simple. I mean, uh, let's say any uh, company, maybe here, you know, in, in this particular city. Let's say you hire on at a particular company. Will the management of that organization not do this? Will they not place you in the care of somebody who has experience in that company? And you'll work around with them maybe for a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months in hopes that you will learn what they know and have the potential of even doing better than what they've done. My son plays competitive baseball. And so, you know, baseball is a huge thing in our family. We all love it. We're all a part of it. I played ball. You know, I was an MVP ball player. Doesn't matter. You know, it really makes you want to know me better, don't you? And, <laughs> but uh, he plays competitive baseball. So since it's a, a huge part of our life, my son and I will sit around and, you know, we'll watch interviews, you know, with, you know, professional baseball players and stuff like that. And there's a particular gentleman, if I named his name, I can about guarantee you every person in this room will know who he is. But five years ago, nobody knew who he was. And so they're doing an interview. I don't remember who the broadcaster was or, you know, but uh, they basically said this, you know, you've become an international superstar. 
Everybody knows you, but you're so easy to talk to. You're such a nice guy. You know, uh, uh, you're, you're very, you know, uh, you're warm in your relating to the media. Why is that? Listen to what he said. I am surrounded by men who have been in this business a lot longer than I have. And they have taught me how to navigate through all of the hurdles that I would face. You see, it's true in any area of life. The Bible tells a man to be an example to a son. The Bible tells a woman to be an example and to teach her daughter. Are you listening to me? How many of you are familiar with Matthew chapter 6? In verse 10, it's the Lord's Prayer. Probably everybody in this room could quote it in your sleep almost. Our Father which art in heaven. What? Hallowed be thy name. How many of you know the next part? Thy will be done. What? On earth as it is in heaven. Now, why don't you stop for a minute. Heaven has a pattern that is to be duplicated on earth. Now, it goes across the board. Heaven has a pattern for a woman to duplicate on the earth. And heaven has a pattern for a man to duplicate on the earth. If it is not duplicated on the earth, you will not have it on the earth. God the Father had a plan, didn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ himself, not some delegate sent to be in his place. The Lord Jesus Christ himself was sent to carry out that plan. Then he said, if I don't go, the comforter will not come. But if I go, I will send him, and he will reveal to you all things. Mm -hmm. You see, the Father had a plan. Jesus carried it out. The Holy Spirit was sent to reveal it. Then it was to be duplicated by the flock. If it is not duplicated on the earth, you will not have it on the earth. Go with me to Philippians chapter 3. Just laying a little foundation here, guys. You're still glad you come to church today. Did you get plenty to eat? Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me. Then he said this, and mark them. Everybody say mark. He said, mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. Listen to what he said. As a man, you go through the daily grind of life, living out your life as a man. And he says, as you do, you are going to encounter other men also living out the daily grind of their life as a man. He says, when you do this, you are going to observe certain men who are living out the daily grind of their life as a man like we did. And he said, when you see one of them, mark them. Doesn't he? I said, doesn't he? I mean, we, I mean, we don't even have to guess. He said, mark them, notice, and make them your example. Make sure you put the right things before your life. Why? It is a law. You will duplicate whatever you consistently put before you. I heard a guy say this years ago. He said, the only difference between who you are today and who you're going to be five years from now is the books you read and the people with whom you associate. You see, the reason why so many have such a difficult time transitioning or changing is they never changed the example before. I mean, you go over the book of James. He says, as you, you know, engage yourself in the Word of God, it will conform you into its very image. Are you guys listening to me? You're going home here today. Amen. Let's notice another one. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Then we're going to get somewhere. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. He said, let no man despise thy youth. Paul is encouraging, quote, what he called his son in the faith, Timothy. And he said, don't let any man despise your youth. I don't know if that means Timothy was facing, you know, folk. How many, of you, how many of you, you know, aged gentlemen have ever had a difficult time receiving, you know, input from a younger gentleman? <laughs> Certainly nobody in this state, right? 
Probably some of you have had a difficult time, you see. And that's just kind of human nature. You just got to put it on. I'm going to learn, and I'm going to learn something from you. So you better put it on there, Skippy. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, apparently, Timothy was dealing with something like that. And he said, let no man despise thy youth. Now, when somebody despises you as a man, typically don't you kind of feel this way? I mean, it's kind of human nature, isn't it? I got something to prove. Right? I got to go out and prove something. Yet he says, Timothy, don't go prove anything. Timothy, this is what he said to him. He said, be an example. He said, don't try and prove how spiritual you are. Don't try and prove how much you know. Don't try and prove how good you are. Just be an example. Notice, he said, to the believers, in your words... He said, be an example to the believers in your conversation, your behavior. He said, Timothy, don't go out and prove anything. He said, be an example of the love walk. Timothy, don't go out and prove anything. Be an example of your spiritual life. Timothy, don't go out and prove anything. Be an example of faith, a faith walk. Believe in God. Timothy, don't go out and prove anything. Be an example of purity. I call that a lost art. Timothy, be an example of what it means to be pure. Hey, listen to me here today. Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Say, the Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. And great is His faithfulness. Titus chapter 2, verse 7 says, in all things. You know what's interesting about that word all? You take that and you put it back in its you know, context of the Greek language. You know what that word all means? This ain't complicated. He said, in all things, what? Show yourself a pattern. He said, of good works. Reveal the pattern of what a good work is. Reveal the pattern with your doctrine. He said, be uncorrupt. Be pure in what you believe. He said, reveal the pattern of gravity, or what we would say, honesty. Reveal the pattern of sincerity. I like to say it this way. There is a huge difference between being authentic and being synthetic. And as a man, I know this. We can be synthetic in a heartbeat. How are you doing? I'm doing great. <laughs> Everything's fine with me. <laughs> Hello? I like to say it this way. Be the real deal. Be genuine. Don't put something on, man. Be the real deal. That's what God made you to be. He said, have sound speech. He said, say things that cannot be condemned. That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. I'm going to ask you a question here, gentlemen. What is heaven's pattern for man as to be duplicated on the earth? But let's break it down into specifics. If I were to say what's heaven's pattern that is to be duplicated on the earth in a man? Do you realize most men don't know? Most men don't know. I like to say it this way. You know, we, we get ideas and sometimes we get partial truths and half truths. You know, some folks say, well, it's someone who reads their Bible a lot. You say, you opposed to reading the Bible? No, you need to read the Bible. You need to read the Bible in front of your family. Well, is it some, well, someone who operates in the gifts of the Spirit? You say you oppose the gifts of the Spirit? No, they've absolutely changed my life. Well, is, somebody, is it somebody who spends a lot of time in prayer? You say, well, you, you know, are you opposed to prayer? No, you need to pray. Well, is it somebody, you know, who lifts weights? Is it somebody who's a good fisherman? Is somebody who's a good businessman? You say opposed to those things? It's like, no, I'm not opposed to those things. But do you realize that as a man here this morning, guys, you could do all of those things that I just said and completely miss the pattern. Let's go somewhere here today. Let's take a little journey. First Timothy chapter 3. I had you over there in the fourth chapter a little bit ago. Let's go back to the third chapter. And the second verse, he's talking about a bishop here. And he says the bishop is to be a husband of one wife. So we know he's talking to a male in this particular instance. 
The word translated bishop literally means a spiritual leader. I like to say it this way, an example, a pattern, or the model. And he said that a bishop, then I'm going to read from the King James translation, then we'll break it down a little further. He said, must be the husband of one wife. He must be vigilant, good, uh, sober of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Verse 6, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. I want you to notice here, he said a model, a pattern maker must be. I want you to notice he does not say this is a good idea. He does not say this is a good suggestion. He does not say this is a commendable thought. He said you must be. This is a pattern for a man on the earth as it is in heaven. He said you must be blameless. It literally means this, one who has nothing in him which the adversary could seize upon and base a charge. It means to possess a morality on which no blame could be found to base an accusation. He goes on to say that he must be faithful to his wife. You see, in the first century, polygamy was huge. Back in the first century, easy divorce was huge. Back in the first century, easy divorce and remarriage was huge. And so Paul was asked about the answer, and he gave them the pattern. He said, be a one-woman sort of man. Now, I know this. If you had a father who was unfaithful to your mother, you have faced temptation to be unfaithful to your wife that you can't even begin to imagine. I know someone who has not, did not have that example put before them. They'll look at you like there's something wrong with you. No, there's nothing wrong with you. You had the wrong example put before you, and you never replaced it. I said that one day. I had a guy come up to me, his eyeballs about this big. He said, I thought it was normal to be unfaithful to my wife. He said, but then again, he got real quiet. He said, my dad was always unfaithful to my mother. He goes on to say, he must be vigilant. In other words, there is something which you must make sure you are actively pursuing and doing. Literally means this. One who voluntarily, purposely, consciously places limitations on his own freedom. I like to say it this way. You must vigilantly, consciously, purposely put banks on the river of your life. You see, any river without banks becomes a what? A flood. It goes on to say, you must possess a state of mind which is free from the excessive influence of passion, lust, or emotion. Listen, guys. If we do not purposely, vigilantly, and consciously put limitations or banks on the river of our life, your passion can reach a certain point in your life where it will force you over your banks. Why? Because there's no bank there. If you do not purposely and consciously and vigilantly put a bank on the river of your life, lust will force you over the bank. Why? Because there's no bank there. If you do not purposely, consciously, and vigilantly put a limitation on your life or a bank on the river of your life, your emotions can reach such an extreme pitch, it will literally force you over your bank. Why? There's no bank there. I do men's conferences all over the country. Do you realize how many men are literally living 
every day of their life in the floodwaters. Wow. He goes on to say, he must be sober, balanced, temperate, self-controlled in all of his passions and desires. The opposite of that word sober is really interesting. It means to be foolish, mindless, rash, unthinking. Boy, that sounds like a lot of men, doesn't it? <laughs> Sorry. Certainly not in our state, right up here? <laughs> That's everywhere else in the country. <laughs> it means to be demon-like. When I was a little kid, and this will date me, my mother and father used to watch a show on television every week called Laugh-In. Anybody ever watch Laugh-In? Yeah, you guys were heathens too, weren't you? <laughs> they used to watch a show called Laugh-In, and there was a guy that would come on there pretty regularly. His name was Flip Wilson. How many of you remember the phrase that he you know, made popular, that literally made him a national figure? Well, what was that phrase? The devil made me do it. Yet listen to what Paul is saying here. He said the devil should never be allowed to make a man do anything. <laughs> he goes on to say he must be of good behavior. What it's referring to is the man that is being developed on the inside of you that is now being portrayed on the outside of you. He's referring to that inner development that is taking place that is now manifesting itself externally in your life. It's referring to a person, a man, who has developed a grace and a dignity that he did not obtain from this world. It goes further. It means a person who acts holy. Now I want to make a statement to you. Holiness is to be modeled and duplicated on the earth. Why? Because that's how it is in heaven. Who is he talking to about modeling holiness on the earth? He's talking to men. Do you realize that nearly every miracle performed in the Bible was performed through a man? Do you realize that nearly every command given in the scripture was given to a man? Do you realize that nearly every one of the great prayers listed in the scripture was a man? Do you realize Jesus chose 12 men to carry on his work in the earth? Do you realize Paul chose men to carry on his mission in the earth? George Barna did one of those polls. And he said 76% of all spiritual decisions made in the home today are made by the woman. I was flying on an airplane, oh, probably about five months ago. And there were two gentlemen sitting in the seat to the left of me, and I could tell they were quoting scripture. So I'm sitting right on the aisle. There's a guy right here and a guy by the window. We're just, you know, and I can hear they're quoting scripture. So I thought, well, I'm going to introduce myself to these guys. And so, you know, we just kind of got to talk, and they found out that I, you know, ministered and that I ministered to men. And the gentleman sitting over by the wall was a professor at a, at a Christian college. And he said, I want to shoot a statistic by you. I found out later it was done by the Baptist church. He said, when a woman comes to Christ, 17% of her family will follow her. But he said, when a man truly comes to Christ... 94% of his family will follow him. Don't tell me the enemy does not know what he's doing when he messes with a man. You have far underestimated your ability to influence a nation. Are you listening to me? I know, I was talking to a pastor in Pennsylvania. He said this. He said, Brother Dean, he said, I've preached that for years. When Mama comes to God, a few things change. But when Daddy comes to God, everything changes. 
<laughs> the truth. And yet what's interesting about our nation, see, my father, I grew up in a military home, so I'm very familiar with statistics. My brother was 26 years in the military. My father was 15, so I grew up on war stories. Well, there were hundreds of thousands of men that were killed as a result of the First and Second World Wars and the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Now, many of those men were leaders in their churches. When they died, it left a huge vacuum in the church. Guess who filled it? And we see the fruit of it today. And the men left them there and didn't assume their rightful responsibility. Do you realize that every world religion has become what it is because of the men that are within it? The Muslim faith has become what it is. Why? Because of the men that are within it. The Mormon faith has become what it is. Why? Because of the men that are within it. The Hindu faith has become what it is. Why? Because of the men that are within it. Communism has become what it is. Why? Because of the men that are within it. Buddhism has become what it is. Why? Because of the men that are within it. And gentlemen, I'm here to say Christianity has become what it is because of the men that are within it. There are two world belief systems that I know of that have become what it is because of a woman. The first one is Christian science, and the second one is atheism. Are you here today, gentlemen? Still glad you've come to church? <laughs> goes on to say that a man must be hospitable that a man must be a friend of or kind to strangers yet do you realize that in most churches who the greeters are women, women. and guys guys just let them do it why because I want to watch football <laughs> or whatever you know there's nothing wrong with football just never let it take the place of God there's a generation out there that is counting on you to get them to heaven. Why? Because they don't know how to get there. Are you listening to me? It goes on to say a man must be. Once again, these aren't good ideas or good suggestions or, you know, commendable thoughts. He said a man must be able to teach the mystery of the gospel. I want to ask you a question. Would you consider teaching the gospel? See, a number of years ago, I taught for two and a half years in ch to children. The Lord directed me to do it, and I didn't understand why. I learned more from teaching kids than I probably ever learned from teaching adults. They force you to be on your toes, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I remember one time I, there was 365 kids ages 6 to 12 years of age in a room. You know who was there to teach them? Myself and one worker. That'll put the fear of God in you, brother. <laughs> I, got so, I got so worn out. We used the term burnt out. Burned out. You ever heard that expression? I was so burned out. I'm like, God, I can't take this. I just want to quit. Nobody's back here helping. Nobody's doing nothing. I just want to quit. Then I made a big mistake. I asked God, can I quit? <laughs> Don't ever ask him that, man. <laughs> well, when we pastored then, here's what I did. Because I knew when it came to the nurturing ages of children, you know, that nursery type thing, man, we, we just got two left thumbs, you know what I mean? But I knew when it got beyond the nurturing stage, I purposely recruited men for the children's department. And then I watched. See, my, my father in the face, a man named Kenneth Hagin. And he used to say that, you know, when he traveled, that he would do personal polls. Have you ever heard him say that? And so uh, I did my personal poll. I specifically recruited men to go back in the children's department. I said, we're only going to have you do it one time a month. We want to create a, a huge, a large rotation here so you can do other things. But I want you to be back in the children's uh, department. Would you consider doing that? Oh, yeah, you know, so we, we got men back there. Then I would stand in the hallway and I would watch 
you know, after church. I'd watch the kids come down the hallway. You know how they do. They're coming out of children's church. Now listen, we had veteran female children's workers. They'd been doing it like since, <coughs> since before Jesus was on the earth. <laughs> you know, they were really good at what they did. But do you know who the kids were hanging on in the hallway every service? They were hanging on the men. I mean, one guy would have six kids. They're sitting on his shoes and hanging off his belts, you know, belt buckles and, you know, hanging off his pants and he's carrying them down the hall on his arm. I remember one guy, his name was David. David received a miracle from God through the ministry. And uh, he'd been run over by a semi and his back had been broken in two places. And he walked like, I called him the hunchback. He walked over the hunt with a limp. He's all bent over and he had a cane. Well, one Sunday morning, the Lord, in essence, you know, spoke to my heart. I'm just sitting up front, and he said, gifts of healings and working a miracle. So I just responded to it. Well, Dave got a miracle that day. He got completely, you know, healed. So I've got, I've got his cane. It's one of my war toys. <laughs> you know? And uh, he said, man, he said, Brother Dean, he said, I'm running, I'm lifting weights, I'm doing things I've never done before. And then he said this. He said, do you know why I always wear long sleeves to church? I said, no, David, I never really thought about it. He said, I'm tattooed completely up and down both arms. I looked him right in the eye. I said, you take your shirt off? I said, you come to shirt with both of those arms just blazing. I said, would you consider working in the children's department? I recruited him immediately. He said, no, I could never do something like that. I said, brother, you've got something to say. He went back to children's department. But the first time he came out, his eyes were blazing. You ever see someone that just, you know, look like, you know, they got the devil in their sights? <laughs> he came out of there, man, his eyes were blazing. He says, I love this. Do you know who became the children's favorite teacher? Dave. It's amazing. They say the elementary schools today are purposely trying to recruit male teachers. They're few and far between because they realize how much greater influence a man has in the elementary age. We have far underestimated our influence. It goes on to say that he should not be given to wine. An individual who always has a wineskin on the table signifying an addiction. Listen to what he's saying here. For a man to be involved in drinking. It has the potential to be a major stumbling block in the life of another human being. He goes on to say a man must not be a striker. It means a violent person who by severe fault finding... You guys still glad you're here today? A violent person. You guys love to get beat up, don't you? <laughs> take, let's take some more hits here, man. Yeah. A violent person who by severe fault finding and blaming language wounds the conscience of a brother or a sister. Now listen to me. We have the normal use usage of the English language. We speak the English language primarily here in this nation. We have the normal usage of the English vocabulary we have what is called the abnormal usage of the English vocabulary. Abnormal usage is called abuse. He says a man must never use their tool of language to wound the conscience of another person. And I know this. If you had a father or a mentor or if you continually put things before you of someone who is verbally abusive, you face huge temptations to do the same. Someone else will look at you like there's something wrong with you. No, there's nothing wrong with you. It's the example that has consistently been placed before you. It's never been replaced. He goes on to say you must not be greedy of money. Now, he's not talking about you shouldn't have an, a desire to increase in your life. You shouldn't have a desire to grow monetarily in your life. What he's referring to is this. 
He's talking about a person who is so eager to gain an increase in their life, it does not matter to them if it degrades their moral character. Listen to what he's exhorting here to men. He said, in a man, money should never be given the power to make you dishonest. He goes on to say, he must be patient, gentle, meek, mild. I don't know about you, but when I first saw that, I thought, well, he's wanting me to be a doormat. And I'd hear people say, you know, Jesus was a doormat for the world. No, Jesus wasn't no doormat for anybody. Jesus Christ was a man of God. He was not a doormat. So he's not talking about being a doormat. Actually, the reverse. See, see, as men, we just tend to think a certain way. When he's telling a man to be patient, what he's saying is this. Be very careful that as a man, you never become a monster. I heard a guy say this one time. He said, he who fights with monsters must be very careful he does not become a monster. And once again, if you had a father that set that example before you, I know you have faced challenges. And you tried to fix it, didn't know what to do. Tried to change, didn't know how to change. Change the example. Put the right thing before you. Are you listening to me? He goes on to say he must not be a brawler, quarrelsome, hateful, and detestable. Listen, a man in a heartbeat can do that. And I mean, men who, you know, it's kind of like my son, you know, sometimes we'll play baseball. And sometimes we play baseball all the time. <laughs> but, you know, I'll, I'll nail him, you know, hard line shots and major ground balls. You know, he's middle infielder. And so I can I'll haul off and well, I'll throw as hard as I can at that kid, literally. But he's good enough now over the years to handle it. Well, you know, sometimes I might nub one. You know what I mean when I use the term nub one, just a little bitty thing, and I'll say, that was a weenie ball. <laughs> yeah, Nicholas, you're handling a weenie ball. See, sometimes what happens is men, when we think of stuff like this, you know, somebody who's mild, and we think, well, he's just a weenie. He's not talking about being a weenie at all. You know what he's referring to here when he says don't be a brawler? Because it refers to being, make sure as a man you're pleasant. Boy, that can be a challenge. Make sure as a man you're sympathetic. That can be even more challenging. Make sure as a man you're peaceful. That can be a challenge. And then he says, make sure as a man you're the peacemaker. Amen. See, when I saw that, it changed me. And I realized, yeah, yeah, how many of you ever have intense fellowship with your wife? <laughs> yeah, don't look at me in that tone of voice, sure. <laughs> I mean, you've had some intense fellowship with your wife. Well, typically when you have intense fellowship, what do you wait for her to do? Oh, say that again? You wait for her to what? Apologize? You know what this says? It's the man who must be the peacemaker. Amen. So I determined, if I'm ever in intense fellowship, sometimes, man, it's a challenge. You ever been there, man? <laughs> I'll be the first to apologize. I bet, see, my father never did that. I didn't even realize the example he'd set before me. See, I, I, had, I had to do this. That stops with me. It will not go through me into my children. All that destructive leadership. All, now listen, I don't have a chip on my shoulder towards my father or anything like that. I look at it this way. See, life changes when you learn to look through someone else's eyes. His father died when he was four. So he didn't have an example of a man in his life. Then he went off to the war. He's stationed in the Galapagos Islands in the South Pacific. They just blew up things. You know what I mean? And shot guns and stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, he just came back real destructive. He didn't have an example of a man in his life. He didn't have an example of a father in his life. He didn't have an example of a husband in his life. How could I even expect him to do something like that to me? That'd be like me getting angry at my six-year-old because he doesn't know as much as my 14-year-old. 
See, it changes when you look through someone else's eyes. Are you listening to me? Sure. So I realized I got to be the peacemaker here. So whenever I had intense fellowship, I'd say, honey, I'm sorry. I've got on my knees and said I was sorry. I was determined I will change the model. So then my 12-year-old, I mean, how many of you ever have your kid? How much time do we got here? Well, my 14-year-old, when she was you know, younger, how many of you ever have your kids, you know, they do something, and you, it's like they say there's three sides to every story, your side, the other fellow's side, and then the right side. And so I'd hear one side of the story, and then I would what? Overreact. Anybody ever do that? And so I would overreact. And then I'd hear the, you know, the right side of the story. And I'd realized I was wrong. See, now my father, he was the kind of guy. Once again, I'm not blaming him. I've learned to mine the gold out of it, if I could say it that way. And, uh, and so anyway, you know, if my father, you know, he was never wrong. It doesn't matter if he was totally wrong and totally in left field. He was never wrong. So he never apologized, never said he was sorry. He was never wrong. He was always right. Why? Because he's the man. So I realized, i got to change it. I don't want that going into my kids. People talk about generational curses. Well, you know what a generational curse is? <laughs> Taking all the bad habits of your parents and giving them to your kids. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I thought, I'm going to change it. So I'd get down on my knees. I, Kelsey, you know, she's maybe 10 years old at the time. I said, Kelsey, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I should have never spoken to you like that. I was wrong. Do you realize how hard that was for me the first time to say it? Because I never heard it. I was wrong. Can you ever find it in your heart to forgive your daddy? Oh, yeah, dad, I can do that. I'm like, man, praise God. (laughs) (laughs) You know, then my son, he's probably eight or nine back then, you know. Get down on my knees. Listen, I never saw my dad do this. Get down on my knees. Nicholas, I should have never spoken to you like that. I am so sorry. I was wrong. Can you ever find it in your heart to forgive your daddy? He looked at me, yeah, dad. I mean, the older they get, they like become your, you know, it's like a a good friend, you know, a comrade almost. It's it's kind of hard to describe. Oh, yeah, Dad, that's no problem. Then I got a little bitty guy, Austin. He's six. He's probably four the first time I did that with him. I said, Austin, Daddy's so sorry. I said, I should have never spoken to you like that. I can't remember what he did. But I overreacted. Heard one side of the story, overreacted. You know, came back, Austin, I'm so sorry. I should have never spoken to you like that. I said, I was wrong. Can you ever find it in your heart to forgive your dad? I remember him looking up to at me with those big blue eyes, staring me right in the face and saying, no. (laughs) Boy, they keep you humble, don't they? (laughs) But my wife and I determined early on, you know, we don't want our kids just to be accountable to us. We also want to be accountable to them and to each other. Amen. He goes on to say that a man uh, must not be covetous. I like to say it this way. You can crave a deep relationship with your wife. You can crave a deep relationship with your kids. You can crave to fulfill the will of God for your life. You can crave to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. But the Bible says that things should never become what a man craves. He goes on to say he must be able to rule his own house well. Complete biblical library words it this way. The word rule does not mean to lead with strict reserve or somber sternness. It means to rule your house with complete dignity and in a manner that fosters respect. I'm going to say it again. The word rule does not mean to lead with strict reserve or somber sternness. It means to rule your house with complete dignity and in a manner that fosters respect. It means to shepherd or guide the home. 
And yet today, that is mostly done by the female. I heard a guy say this years ago, anyone can be a father, but it takes a real man to be a daddy. So true. Ah, here's a couple more. We'll wind it down. No clock in here. I know your seat can only handle, or your spirit can only handle much as your seat can endure. <laughs> it says he, you must not remain a beginner. Don't stay where you are. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing the same way you've always done it and expecting different results. Make sure you are growing. He says a man must have a good report outside of the church. How do unbelievers look at you? My son, his first four years in baseball, I coached him. And so here, you know, we're playing a tournament game, you know, uh, in the city of Dayton, Ohio. And, you know, we're getting beat. It's like one guy says, it is what it is. The other team is stacked, and I have a problem with that. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it is what it is. You know, they're just getting beat. And so they, you know, they ended up losing the game. And so now it's, you know, it's team meeting. It's parents meeting. You know, it's last game of the season. So all the parents are out there. Now, my assistant coach is, you know, about as far away from me as you are right there on the wall. And he's sitting over here. Now, he used to say things like this to me. If I ever come to your church, you'll know the devil came to church. That's what he'd say to me. You know, he's just, he was really obnoxious fella. And, uh, you know, we use the term belligerent and obnoxious. He was just that personified. And, he, you know, he was always, you know, cutting people down. Well, he's sitting down over here, and he starts cussing in front of all the parents. I'm sitting there thinking, this is just great. Here I am. I'm a minister of the gospel. They all know I'm a minister of the gospel. And my assistant coach is cussing right over here. I mean, just foul mouth. I remember stopping the whole meeting, looking over at him, and saying, what would you say? He said it right in front of everybody. He did it on purpose. I said, what would you say? Man, he's kind of like, Brother Hagin used to say, it's like you slapped him in the face with a wet dish rag. I said, I'm going to pray for you, man. Said it right in front of everybody. What did I do? Did I cut him down? No. Did I try to make him feel bad? No. What did I do? I held him accountable in front of everybody for his behavior. Do you realize that day I earned that man's respect? Even though he's an unbeliever, even though he disagreed with everything that I stood for, I earned his respect without cutting him down, not trying to make him feel bad. Not trying, you know, I just held him accountable for his behavior. Well, now I did the same thing, you know, uh, my daughter, because I coached her in soccer. Same thing. Coach is cussing. He's a nine-year-old girl. He's cussing. So what would you say? Said right in front of everybody. I'm going to pray for you, man. I earned his respect. He's still a friend today. Whenever we go back to Ohio, guess who I always make sure to stop in and say? Well, then my son, after he, you know, he got into competitive ball, his first competitive baseball coach pitched for the Cleveland Indians. Great big guy, like six foot three. And, uh, and so, you know, he, he was just such a solid, you know, man in terms of, you know, the game of baseball and all that. And so he knew that I had a, a background in baseball, so whenever any of his coaching staff wasn't there, he'd say, he'd say, Dean, could you coach, you know, first base for him? I said, yeah, Mike, I don't have a problem with that. And so here we're at, you know, a night game, and, and uh, you know, my wife and I are sitting there over in the stands, and he walks over to me, he says, Dean, you know, so-and-so's not going to be here tonight. Can you coach first base? I said, sure. So I walked out on the ball field, and I walked over to the dugout. By this time, he's standing in the dugout, and he looks at me. Now, he's a big, he's a towering man. And he looks at me and he says, give him hell, Dean. Because I'm walking away like this, you know, give him hell, Dean. And I stopped. I turned around and I walked back and I looked right up at Mike. I said, Mike, I said, you know I can't give him hell. I said, I got to give him heaven. Man, he starts backtracking. <laughs> even, even Jesus preached fire and brimstone. I'm sitting there laughing. I'm thinking, man, this guy, this guy is sweating bullets. Look at this guy. This is great. <laughs> 
I'm just staring at him. He's trying to recant all his words and come up with all these reasons why he could talk like that. <laughs> Do you know? Every time we go back to Ohio, you know who I always make sure I go and see? Big Mike. I earned his respect that day. How do an unbeliever, how does an unbeliever look at you? It's like I got a, man, I could just, I could just, I could just tell story after story. There's another guy, guy, another guy named Mike, got hair down to here. You know, we went to high school together years ago. And uh, he had gotten over into the rock and roll. And so he was a disc jockey. You, you could name any major rock and roll band through the 80s or the 90s. He knows them all personally. Well, we went to high school together, so I called him up one day. Actually, I called his mother because I was trying to find him. I hadn't heard from him. You know, we were friends years and years ago, and I thought, I'm going to talk to this guy. And, uh, and so I, it turns out he lived 10 minutes from my house. Imagine that. And so I called him up, you know, and we got to talking. Well, through a process of time, you know, I witnessed to him. He got born again. He got filled with the Holy Ghost. Now he's pursuing, you know... Just radical rock. He's he's a dean. He said, most Christians can't handle what I do. He's he's reaching a whole other world from what you and I would try to reach. It's a whole other world that's going on behind this world. And he's right in the grunge of it all. And I looked at him. I said, Mike, I said, when I first met him, you ever see the big lit up signs? You know, when a lot of churches will have lit up signs, you know, with flashing words and different things. Like, how many know what I'm talking about? Well, he's talking to me about he's driving down the highway and his church has this big lit up sign. And this is what he would say. I keep yelling at the sign to stop shouting at me. That was his mindset towards Christians. And so here I am. I'm talking to him about getting saved. I shared my testimony with him, what happened in my life, how the Lord turned my life around, everything like that. I said, Mike, what was the difference? I said, here you've heard all these people. Here you had all this kind of... What was the difference? Why did you get saved? This is what he said. He said, because you don't judge people. Man, that was the last thing in the world I expected to hear him say. And I thought, you know, you're right. Who am I to judge you? Who am I to judge you? You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'll be a witness to you. I'll talk to you about Christ. I don't have a problem with that, but who am I to judge you? It changed that whole man's life. How do unbelievers view you? I'm going to give you some practical things, guys, to take home with you, and then we'll wind this down. Amen? Everybody said amen. Amen. Have you forgiven everyone? How can you model this? How can you lead by example as a man? Have you forgiven everyone? Is there any malice, spite, hatred in your heart? Do you hold grudges and refuse to be reconciled? We can do that in a heartbeat. Here's another one. Do you lose your temper? Easily. Does, you know, wrath hold you and control you? Here's another one. Are you a jealous person? When someone else is preferred before you, does it make you envious and uncomfortable? Do you get jealous of others who can pray or speak or do things better than you can? Here's another one. Do you get impatient and irritated? Do little things just bug you? Or are you calm and unruffled under all circumstances? Are you offended easily when someone fails to notice you and pass by, passes by without talking to you? Does it make you hurt? Is there pride in you? Are you puffed up? Do you think a great deal about your own accomplishments, your own position? Are you honest or do you exaggerate and make false impressions? Do you criticize harshly? and severely. As a man, are you always finding fault and looking for the flaws in others, such as your wife, your children, your friends? How about the driver who's driving too slow right in front of you? (laughs) Oh, did I say that? I didn't even say that. (laughs) Have you committed the act of prayerlessness? Are you an intercessor? Do you pray? How much do you pray? How much time do you spend on your knees? Or have you allowed society to crowd prayer out of your life? What about the Word of God? How much do you read? Do you draw your source of supply from the Scripture? 
Do you confess Christ openly as a man, or are you ashamed of him? Do you keep your mouth closed when you're surrounded by worldly people? Have you wronged anyone and failed to make it right? Or have you restored the many little things that God is showing you? Guys, if we just took one of those things, I know we talked probably maybe 10, 12, 13 of them. If you just took one, just one, and majored in it, do you think you'd have a positive impact on your life? Just one of them. What if you did all of them? Do you know what you'd have? Heaven on earth. Let's bow our hearts together, guys.